Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9. Those verses which are just read will be our text this morning, verses 1 through 10. And the title for the sermon this morning is, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And that title is drawn from the words of Herod in verse 9, where he said of Jesus, Who is this of whom I hear such things? At the beginning of Luke 9, we find this account of the twelve disciples sent out for ministry in Galilee. And in the middle of this account, we have what almost seems like an interruption. We are told about Herod's response when he hears about the ministry of Jesus. And then in verse 10, we see what happened when the disciples returned to Jesus. There's much for us to learn from this passage. Much can be gleaned here. But the primary application for us this morning will come as we consider the identity of Jesus in light of this text. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to be gathered here together. We thank you for your blessings in our lives. Lord, you are so good to us in every area. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that our hearts would be aligned with you, that we would worship you in this time. Lord, that you would bring conviction from your word conviction of of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin that there is wrong, of righteousness that there is right, and of judgment to come, that one day we will stand before you and give an account of our lives. Lord, may you draw those who do not know you to yourself in salvation, and Lord, may you conform us, believers, more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First, in this passage, we see the disciples sent out in verses 1 through 6. Now, before we even get to the words of this text, we see something about Jesus. We see here another example of his true humanity. Though he was truly God, he was also truly man. Because he humbled himself and took upon himself our humanity, he was subject to all these same limitations to which we are subject. Jesus had a message to proclaim, and he proclaimed that message as he traveled throughout Galilee during his earthly ministry. But because he was truly man... He could only be in one place at one time. He did not have unlimited energies. He would grow tired, just as we grow tired. He needed to rest. And so we see that Jesus used his disciples to help him spread the message God the Father had sent him to preach. Now in verse 1, it begins, Then he, Jesus, called his twelve disciples together. This is the same twelve that are listed in Luke 6, verses 14 through 16, when Jesus chose them. And on that occasion, when Jesus called them out of his larger circle of disciples, he called them apostles. Now, because of how the words disciple and apostle are used, especially in the Gospels, we might think that they are interchangeable terms, but they are not. Now, the word disciple means a learner or a student, but a disciple is more than just a pupil. A disciple was an adherent. They were personally committed to the truth that was being taught, and they sought to be imitators of their teacher. The word apostle means sent one. In the Greek world, an apostle would function like an ambassador. Someone would, be, someone would send out an apostle with their authority to accomplish a specific task. The apostle was responsible to the sender for how they used that authority to accomplish the task assigned to them. They would not be sent out in a general way, but rather for very specific tasks. There were no freelance apostles. Apostles were always sent on clearly defined missions, and while on those missions, they acted with the full authority of whoever sent them, and they were accountable to that person. 
Now, in the Gospels, the twelve are normally referred to as disciples because their primary role during the earthly ministry of Jesus was to learn from him. In the book of Acts, there is a shift, and the twelve are never specifically referred to as disciples. They are always called either just the twelve or the apostles. And the shift in terminology mirrors a shift in their ministry. They were no longer learning under Jesus during his earthly ministry, but rather they were sent out to preach the gospel to the world. So in verse 1 of our text, the twelve are referred to as disciples, but we see them begin to fulfill their role as apostles as they are sent out by Jesus to preach in the towns and villages of Galilee. Now consider who these men were in light of the task given to them. The message and ministry of Jesus during his earthly ministry is beautifully summarized in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. And this was the passage that Jesus read when he announced his ministry in Nazareth, back in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And when Jesus read that scripture in Nazareth, he said, this day the scripture is fulfilled. This was the task God the Father had given to God the Son to accomplish during his earthly ministry. In our text, we see Jesus sent out men to help him preach this message. Now, whom did he send? Who did he send? The best and brightest from the schools in Jerusalem. No. The revered and esteemed from among the very conservative and highly respected Pharisees. No. The powerful, influential, and wealthy from the ruling class in Israel. No. Jesus sent out some fishermen, a tax collector, and a zealot. These are not the men you and I would have picked for this task. But it pleased God to use the foolish and weak things of this world to confound the wise and mighty. In our weakness, God makes his strength manifest. Just as Jesus used these 12 ordinary men to share the gospel during his earthly ministry, so he uses you and I today. We might not be the best and brightest. We might not be revered and esteemed. We might not be powerful, influential, or wealthy. But it has pleased God to call us to himself and to use us to share the gospel with those around us. May we be faithful with the calling God has given to us. Now, verse 1 tells us how Jesus equipped the disciples for this period of ministry. He empowered them to work miracles. He gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Now, why did Jesus do this? Like all the other miracles, these were to be signs to confirm that their message came from God. Now, the message of the disciples was shocking. The Messiah is here. They were to preach the kingdom of God. It was very different from what the people were accustomed to hearing from the Pharisees. And it was a vitally important message. And here again we see God's mercy, His patience, and His long-suffering toward mankind. Not only did God enter His creation as a man, and that should shock us. Not only did He preach and tell people who He was and what He had come to accomplish. Not only did He work miracles to confirm this message to the people. Not only did He trouble Himself to travel around going to where the people were to preach to them. But he also sent out his disciples with the same message and gave them power to work miracles that men might hear the gospel and believe. On the day of judgment, 
in view of the mercies of God. Mankind as a whole and as individuals will be without excuse. What more could we ever dream God would do for mankind? On the day of judgment, what accusation will we bring against God and say to him, well, if only you had done this, then I would have believed. God has done more for us than we could ever ask or think. Don't squander the mercies of God. Beware that you do not reject God in the day of his mercy, lest you face him in the day of his wrath. Now, two specific areas of miraculous power are mentioned here in verse 1. First, the twelve are given power and authority over all devils. Jesus had come to crush the head of the serpent, as was prophesied in Genesis 3. Wherever the power of Satan was manifest, there would Jesus show himself victorious. As the twelve were sent out, they were given the same authority that Jesus had to cast down the stronghold of Satan in the hearts and lives of the people they would encounter. Second, the twelve were given power to cure diseases. Now certainly, on the surface, this would have made the disciples welcome wherever they went as they cured the people. But this ability also points to the redemption Jesus came to accomplish. Death and disease are the result of sin. Jesus Christ came to deal with sin. And Jesus accomplished not only spiritual redemption, but a complete victory over sin. Right now, believers enjoy the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance in Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 1 tells us. And when Jesus returns, all the dead in Christ will be raised. That is, raised physically, raised incorruptible, raised like Jesus Christ, who is the firstfruits of the resurrection. We will be raised incorruptible because Jesus Christ accomplished a full and perfect redemption. And that covers every facet of our existence. Everywhere that sin's corruption reaches, Jesus Christ's redemption reaches as well and redeems. The power of Jesus Christ to heal and to give that same power to his disciples pointed to the perfect redemption Jesus came to accomplish. Well, in verse 2, we see the specific tasks Jesus gave to the disciples. Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel, to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. We just talked about healing the sick, so here we will focus on the preaching of the kingdom of God. Now consider this. Jesus sent his disciples out to preach about something they did not understand. In Luke 19.11, we're told that those who heard Jesus preach thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. In Acts 1.6, after the resurrection, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? The disciples were still confused about the nature of the kingdom of God, even after the resurrection. So why did Jesus send them out like this, at this time, to preach the kingdom of God? They did not need to perfectly understand the kingdom of God before they could point others to the Messiah who had come to establish that kingdom. Now, as we go on through the Gospels and then through the book of Acts, we see the twelve deepen in their understanding of who Jesus was and the work that he came to accomplish. At this point, they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And at this point, that was enough. There are two points of application I want to make for us. First, don't ever allow any feeling of inadequacy stop you from telling others about Jesus. You might not currently possess a great depth of theological knowledge. You might be very young in your Christian walk. You haven't yet had time to dig deeply into the Word of God. There may be things that you don't understand, and if someone were to ask you about them, you, you would have to say, I, I don't know. 
But you don't need to have a perfect knowledge to tell others about Jesus. If that was necessary, no one could share the gospel. It's enough to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you resting in Him as your Lord and Savior? Then tell others about Him. Don't allow any feeling of inadequacy stop you from pointing others to Jesus. But then second, don't rest content with the milk of the gospel, but grow in your understanding of the Word of God. The twelve were sent out on this occasion without a full understanding of the kingdom of God, and God used them during this period mightily. But they did not rest content there. They continued to grow in their understanding. Throughout the Gospels, they received further instruction from Jesus. In Acts, they were instructed and led by the indwelling Holy Spirit. They devoted themselves to the study of the Old Testament Scriptures. They grew in their understanding, and as they grew, they used that to help disciple others and to help them grow. And so it should be for us. As we mature in our Christian walk, our depth of understanding will grow. The gospel is beautiful in its simplicity. The gospel is also beautiful in its depth. God is glorified in all aspects of the gospel. And as we grow in understanding, we will grow in our reverence and our worship of God. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that the angels in heaven desire to look into the depths of the gospel. And so should we. For there God is glorified. Now, verses 3 through 5, we read the instructions Jesus gave to his disciples on this occasion. In verse 3, Jesus told them not to take any supplies with them on their journey. The instruction was clear take nothing for your journey. Take nothing. And then Jesus gave specifics don't take multiple staves or walking sticks, don't take a script or a pack for food, don't take any bread. Don't take any money. Don't take two coats. Jesus sent them out on this occasion with just the clothes on their backs. Now, before we look at this in more depth, it's important to note that this is a descriptive passage and not a prescriptive passage. That is, it tells us what happened on this occasion and not what we should do now. When someone is preparing for ministry now, we should not uh, go to this passage and say, well, this is what Jesus expects you to do. And how do we know? Well, Jesus made this clear later on in his ministry. In Luke twenty-two thirty-six. Jesus was talking about this occasion. He references it directly. And he said, But now, he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So it's clear that this passage is descriptive and not prescriptive. And that should lead us to ask then, why did Jesus instruct his disciples not to take anything with them on this occasion? Well, first... It was to teach them to rely on God's provision. In Luke twenty-two thirty-five, And he, Jesus, said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. So through this experience, Jesus taught his disciples to trust in the providential supply of God. And we'll see as we continue through Luke, this was a lesson that the disciples needed over and over again. Well, second, this also ensured that disciples would go immediately. There was not a long period of preparation for this trip. They did not gather supplies, set up logistics. Jesus sent them out, and they immediately went. And this was important because Jesus' earthly ministry was a relatively short period of time. And finally, it ensured that the disciples would not be received or rejected, as the case may be, not on the basis of those things, such as their clothing or provisions or the money, but on the basis of the message that they came to deliver. Now, in verse 4, Jesus told his disciples how their needs would be met during this trip. 
when they were received as guests in a home, they were to remain as guests at that home until they left that area. The hospitality like this was common, was a common part of that culture. Traveling teachers would often be welcome guests in homes. We see this as we continue on to the book of Acts and the epistles. But the disciples were not to take advantage of this hospitality by jumping from home to home continually in an area. Whatever home they first entered, they were to stay there until they left that area. And that was the means that God would use on this occasion to provide for the needs of the twelve. And in verse 5, Jesus told his disciples how to handle rejection. Wherever they were not received, when they left that city, they were to shake the dust off of their feet as a testimony against them. And this was a strongly symbolic action for the Jews. They considered the dust of heathen lands to be unclean and thus defiling. Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher, he wrote, The dust which is without the land of Israel defiles by touching or carrying. Now some Jews would go so far as to not buy herbs grown outside of the land of Israel, lest some dust might remain on them and thus contaminate their food and make their food unclean. Some Jews would shake the dust off of their feet when they left Gentile lands as a symbolic gesture to show that they would not be defiled by the wickedness of the Gentiles. Now Jesus took this symbolic act and turned it upon the Jews who rejected the message delivered by the disciples. Through this action, the disciples would have shown that those cities were considered wicked and unclean, not unlike the Gentile cities so despised by the faithful Jews. It was a warning of God's future judgment upon them. Their being Jews would not do them any good since they had rejected their Messiah. Interestingly, we have an account in Acts 15.51 of Paul and Barnabas using this same symbolic gesture toward the Jews in Antioch when they rejected the gospel. When they were driven out of that city, Paul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off of their feet. Now, verse 6, we read that the disciples did exactly what Jesus had commissioned them to do. They went throughout the towns and villages of Galilee, preaching the gospel and healing the sick. Well, so far... From this text, we've seen the disciples sent out by Jesus. Now, what did they know about Jesus? Well, they knew that he was the Messiah. They didn't understand what his ministry would look like. They did not yet understand the work of redemption that Jesus had come to accomplish. These things were not yet revealed to them, but they knew he was the Messiah. And at this time, that was enough. Well, next we see several verses talking about Herod and his speculation about the identity of Jesus. And this seems like a strange place to find these verses. They almost seem like an interruption to this passage about the disciples being sent out. But in these verses, we see Herod and others speculate about the identity of Jesus. And we gain another perspective on how Jesus was viewed during his earthly ministry. Herod was perplexed. Now, this Herod was the same Herod we studied at length in Luke chapter 3. And as a quick summary, he was one of the sons of Herod the Great. He was appointed by the Roman emperor as the ruler of Galilee. And this passage, as this passage reminds us, it was this Herod that executed John the Baptist. Now, verse 7 tells us, Herod heard of all that was done by Jesus. We've seen earlier in Luke's gospel that many people from all over came to see Jesus and to hear him preach because word had spread about the miraculous ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, here we're told that news of Jesus had even reached Herod. And we know Herod was curious about the identity of Jesus, as we see in this text. We're also told elsewhere. We know from Luke 23, verse 8, that Herod had a strong desire to see Jesus. 
Listen to what we're told in Luke 23.8. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him for a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. I find Herod's actions very interesting. When Jesus was brought before Herod as a prisoner, and that was a situation in Luke 23, when Jesus was brought before Herod as a prisoner, Herod was glad to see him, exceeding glad, thrilled to see Jesus. But earlier, at the time of our text, when Jesus was active in his ministry, and Herod had every opportunity to go and see him and his ministry and to hear him preach, he never troubled himself to go see Jesus. Beware of a vain curiosity about Jesus. It does you no good to speculate about Jesus. It does you no good to merely hear about Jesus. You must seek him out. You must go to him as he commands in repentance and faith. In repentance, acknowledging that you are a sinner, a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice, deserving the wrath of God. And in faith, believing that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior, the only way to the Father, that his blood is the only sufficient covering for your sins. Many people, like Herod, have been curious about Jesus, but have died under the wrath of God. Beware of a vain curiosity about Jesus. Well, verse 7 continues and tells us that after Herod heard about Jesus, he was perplexed. Perplexed. It's a strong word that's translated here. It indicates perplexity amounting to despair. Why would Herod be so troubled by Jesus? Who was Jesus, humanly speaking? In the opinion of his enemies, he was nobody. He was the illegitimate son of a poor carpenter from Nazareth. He was an ignorant, meddling, wannabe rabbi. Nothing more. Who was Herod, humanly speaking? Well, Herod was somebody in the world. Herod was a friend of the emperor. He had been schooled in Rome. He knew the emperor personally. Herod ruled Galilee. Herod had money. Herod had influence. Herod had power. It was completely in his power, humanly speaking, to execute Jesus if he so desired, just as he had executed John the Baptist. So why was Herod so perplexed by Jesus? He was perplexed. He was troubled because of what people were saying about Jesus. Verse 7 goes on, because it was said of some. And then what follows here is several theories about the identity of Jesus. First, at the end of verse 7, we read that some people said, John was risen from the dead. And you can understand how that possibility would be very troubling to Herod. He had had John executed. He had seen John's head on a platter. John had been a thorn in Herod's side. He had feared to execute him because he believed he was a righteous man. But he made a, a foolish oath, and he foolishly kept that oath, an unlawful oath, and had John the Baptist executed. Now, if John the Baptist had come back from the dead, what would that mean for Herod? You can see how that would trouble Herod. The first part of verse 8 tells us that others said that Elias had appeared. Now, Elias is the transliteration of the Hebrew name for Elijah. And what do we know about Elijah? Well, Elijah was the prophet of God who boldly confronted wicked king Ahab. Because Elijah warned Ahab of God's judgment that would come upon him for his wickedness, Ahab sought to kill Elijah. He never succeeded, but he tried. And he did kill scores of other prophets and true worshipers of God in Israel during his reign. God would eventually use Elijah to pronounce final judgment upon Ahab and his descendants because of his great wickedness. And this judgment came to pass. All of Ahab's immediate family 
died a violent death. Again, you can understand how that possibility would be troubling to a man like Herod. He and Ahab had much in common. Elijah had pronounced Ahab's doom. Had he returned to pronounce Herod's doom? Well, finally, at the end of verse 8, some said one of the old prophets was risen again. Now think about the Old Testament prophets. God never sent prophets to congratulate his people for doing a good job. Prophets were announcers of judgment. There's a lot of gospel to be found in the Old Testament prophets. A lot of hope. A lot of encouragement to the faithful. A lot of prophecy about the Messiah. But the message of the Old Testament prophets to the wicked who would not repent is a clear and consistent message. You will face the judgment of God. It was an unwelcome message when the Old Testament prophets delivered it. And many of them were killed for it. And it was an unwelcome message when Herod received it. John the Baptist was killed for it. And here are some saying, well, one of the old prophets has come back. And Herod may have wondered, has another prophet come to announce God's judgment upon me? Well, look at Herod's response to this in verse 9. Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this of whom I hear such things? In Matthew's account, in Matthew 14.2, that passage indicates that of all these theories about Jesus, Herod was most inclined to believe that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. But Herod didn't come to any real conclusions about Jesus. He wondered about it, he speculated about it, but he never came to any real conclusion about Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. He had a great desire to see Jesus, to see his miracles, but he never sought him out. Again, beware of a vain curiosity about Jesus. It's empty, it's worthless, and in the end, it leads only to the judgment of God. Well, so far from this text, we've seen the disciples sent out. And then we saw Herod perplexed as he heard about Jesus. In verse 10, the focus is again returned to Jesus and the disciples as we read what happened when the disciples returned. Verse 10 begins, And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. Now notice here the change in terms. When Jesus called the twelve together, back in verse 1, they were called disciples or students. And now, as they return, they are called apostles or sent ones. The term apostle is used on this occasion because it matches the work which they had just been involved in, from which they had just returned. They had been sent out by Jesus with authority to preach the kingdom of God. And notice what they did at the end of this time. They returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. They recounted to Jesus the work that they had accomplished in his name throughout the towns and villages of Galilee. Remember, they had been given power and authority over devils and to cure diseases. They were to heal the sick and preach the kingdom of God. And so they came back and they recounted their actual experiences to Jesus as they had preached throughout Galilee. Now consider that Judas Iscariot was among the twelve at this time. He was one of those who returned and told Jesus what he had done. He was involved in this ministry. He acted in the office of an apostle at this time. And yet, he was not a true follower of Jesus. He would go on to betray our Lord. We learn from this the deceitfulness of sin and the power of God. First, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin blinds us to reality. Judas Iscariot was not a true follower of Jesus. His heart was not transformed by grace. His faith was superficial. Yet he preached, cast out demons, healed sick in, the name, in Jesus' name. He told others about Jesus. 
there was no suspicion among the other 11 disciples that Judas Iscariot was not genuine. No, no indication at all that they thought he was not genuine. But he never truly knew Jesus. Or more accurately, Jesus never truly knew him. Let's apply this to ourselves. We can do all manner of good works. We can know good theology. We can go to a good church. We can be involved in ministry. But we can still be blinded by sin and never truly be born again. Jesus gave this solemn warning in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, preached in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I, Jesus, will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Salvation is not found in the good things you do or the bad things you don't do. Salvation is not found in the truth that you know about God. Salvation is not found in the people you associate with in a local church body. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. You can have all the trappings of Christianity and none of the reality. You must know Jesus. Jesus must know you. Beware lest on the day of judgment you hear those terrible words from Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. How can you avoid such an end? You must accept Jesus at his terms. And his terms are a full and unconditional surrender. Confess your sins. Acknowledge them before God. Call them what they are. Treason against the God who created you. Acknowledge that your sins bring you under the just judgment of God. And then look in faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. He paid the price for sins. He is able and willing to forgive. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you might be sitting here today, and you've heard this before. Maybe you've done this before. You've confessed your sins. You've cried out to Jesus for salvation, but you don't feel forgiven. Now, I can't see your heart. What happens there is between you and God. But this I know. The authority of God's word. If you were sincere, then you are forgiven. Beware that you do not exalt your feelings above the promises of God. Don't add to your sins unbelief. Rest in the precious promises of God found in his word. Martin Luther wrote hundreds of years ago this poem, but it's very... It addresses this, this topic very well. It says, Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. What will you trust? We trust your feelings. We trust the word of God. It's an authority issue. God calls us to come under the authority of his word. Your feelings don't dictate reality. God does. Rest in his unchanging word. Well, the second thing we can learn from the ministry accomplished through Judas Iscariot is the power of God. The power of God. God is in no way limited in who he uses to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes the most unlikely people are the ones, God's, are the ones God chooses to accomplish his purposes. We see this throughout the Bible. A few examples. In Exodus, God used Pharaoh. Even through the hardness of his heart toward God, 
God used him to deliver his people from Egypt with a mighty hand to demonstrate his power against the proud Egyptians. God used first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to carry his people off into captivity. These were wicked, wicked nations. They had no interest in obeying God and serving God. They were not invading Israel and Judah because they had a desire to obey God. They were following their sinful lusts of conquest. Yet God used them and their lust for conquest to chastise and to correct his people. In the book of Acts, God used the Sanhedrin and the Roman appointed authorities in Jerusalem to spread the gospel. These were the people responsible for killing Jesus. How could God use such people to spread the gospel? Well, in their zeal against God, they persecuted the church in Jerusalem. And as a result, the believers scattered. And as they scattered, they carried the gospel with them. Here in our text, God used Judas Iscariot, wicked Judas Iscariot, a hypocrite, to minister to the other disciples, the other apostles throughout Galilee. God uses even the wicked to accomplish the ends he has ordained. Man has a free will. And in his free will, man chooses sin. The Bible is clear that man has a free will. And the Bible is also clear about what free, man's free will produces. It's sin. Even in the garden, where man was created perfect, without any stain of sin, created perfect, we still chose to disobey the one command God had given. Do we think that in our corrupted state, where Adam failed to obey God, we will succeed? We don't need to wonder. All we need to do is look around us, look at ourselves. In our freedom, we choose sin. It's our nature. Even when we seem to do good on our own, below it all is sin. Jesus talked about this back in Luke chapter 6. But this puts no constraint upon God. He rules and overrules in the affairs of men. And even the most desperately wicked cannot constrain the hand of God. God will turn their wickedness to his ends to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. Woe to the wicked who resist God. Not only does their wickedness heap upon them the judgment of God, but it is completely ineffectual. God is in no way hindered from accomplishing that which he has purposed. Revelation 4.11 tells us that all that is and was created was created for God's good pleasure. We exist for his glory. There is no way to escape this purpose. The question is, will God be glorified in your salvation, or will God be glorified in your judgment? And the end of verse 10 tells us, then when the disciples returned, Jesus used the success of their ministry in Galilee as a springboard for a major campaign in the region. Jesus, who had been resting while the disciples were out in their ministry, immediately launched into an intense period of evangelism there in the major cities of Galilee. And building off of the momentum gained by the apostles, this campaign saw the followers of Jesus grow exponentially in number. And soon enough, the kingdom of God was established in Galilee. No. That's not what happened. Now, it might appeal to us. It might be what we would have done or what we might expect. That's not what Jesus did. Rather, the end of verse 10 tells us, And he, that is Jesus, took them, the twelve, and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. The disciples were not yet ready to take on their full role as apostles. Jesus still had much to teach them. Instead of sending them back out to preach, Jesus took them to a desert place. And Jesus did this privately. 
He did not tell the crowds where he was going. Now, Jesus, keep in mind, he's still very popular in Galilee at this time. Not just popular in Galilee, he's popular in the surrounding regions. People from all over have been coming to hear Jesus and to uh, see the miracles he performs, hear him preach. But of course we know, as we continue on through the Gospels, that these crowds will soon diminish. And eventually they would even turn against him as he drew closer and closer to the cross. Well, we looked at this text this morning with this question, who was Jesus? The disciples knew that he was the Messiah. But at this time, they didn't understand why he was there. Herod was perplexed when he pondered the identity of this unknown man. He was doing so many miraculous deeds. But Jesus had no identity crisis. He knew who he was. He knew his purpose, his mission, and his end. And we have the benefit of looking at the ministry of Jesus with the perspective of history. We know the story. We've read the Gospels. We know who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, who he is presented as in Scripture. And the question for you this morning is, who are you like in this text? Are you like Herod? Does Jesus perplex you? Are you troubled at the thought that Jesus may be like John the Baptist, or like one of the Old Testament prophets, that he came to announce God's judgment upon the wicked? The first time Jesus came, He came as a suffering Savior. He came to accomplish redemption. When he returns, he will return as judge. The wicked should be fearful of this coming day of judgment. Are you like the twelve? You know who Jesus is, the Messiah, but you don't fully grasp what that means. Rejoice in the milk of the gospel, but don't be content to remain there. Dig deeply into the word of God and grow in your understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Know Jesus for who he truly is, as Scripture reveals him, as your Savior, your King, and your God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we see you work in the weak things of this world. Lord, give us humility that we would never think that Your work can be accomplished in our strength if we just try harder in ourselves. We can do what you have called us to, Lord. Rather, let us turn from ourselves and turn from such futility and turn to Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, empowered by the Holy Spirit, may we go out and be faithful with the task you have set before us. Lord, may we be faithful in proclaiming the identity of Jesus to those around us, pointing others to Jesus Christ, the one and only way to God the Father. We do a work of grace in hearts and lives this morning, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.